So yesterday we were speaking about an incomplete hatred. And hatred is incomplete in as much as it allows for a certain degree of tolerance. Why would you tolerate what you hate? You have to. You have to, because that's the way the world works. Right? So why, why is the incomplete tzaddik have some degree of tolerance for evil or ungodliness? Because their love for God is constrained by the world. Right? In other words, if we were to think about this in a physical metaphor, which this is a good metaphor actually heard in a totally different context. Um, before I got married, one of my mentors told me that when you're married, you should always think of problems in the following manner. There's the husband and there's the wife, and where's the problem? Because there's always, there's problems, there will be problems, that's just kind of how it goes. But where is the problem? You have the husband, you have the wife, and the problem. How is that should be arranged? So the intuitive way is that, say, the husband is over here, the wife is over there, or vice versa if you're the wife, and whereas the problem is in between the two of you. The proper way to arrange the problem is such that the husband is over here, the wife is over here, and then the two of you are looking together at the problem. That's cute. Right? And that is a, a mind-shift that you need to make, is that, is that the togetherness is, is something that needs to be established in order to deal with the problem, not, you, not it's something that is achieved by removing the problem. Okay? So in the tzaddik gomor, the complete tzaddik's experience, where is Hashem and where is the world? Hashem is right next to him and where is the world? Something that he and Hashem are kind of looking out on together. But where, for the incomplete tzaddik, right? The incomplete tzaddik, where is Hashem? Hashem is found by somehow navigating and getting closer to Hashem through the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so he, his love is constrained by the fact that there's a world, there's the way things are. And, and that means there's a certain amount of legitimacy and tolerance for the way things are. Okay, that's summarizing what we said yesterday. Questions on this idea before we go back in text and go forward? No? Okay. I have a question of what it means that he sees in the same way that Hashem does, but I guess you probably don't understand that. Well, we can give you an analogy. I mean, we're going to come to it later, but let's use, let's use, let's use the following analogy, okay? Um... Let's say you have let's say that that you have a person who's ill. Okay. And you want them to get better. Do you feel, I was using the word feel, like they need a doctor? They need a medicine. They need a treatment. No, you know that. The reason I'm using feel as opposed to, as opposed to, I want to move away from like abstract academic thinking because that's not really reflective of a person. In other words, I can sit in a class and teach you about like Nazism quite articulately. It doesn't mean that I in any way feel that that reflects reality, right? 
I mean, people have the ability to use their intellect in ways that are detached from the experience of reality. So that's what I mean by feel, right? Okay. Yeah. I don't mean like emotionally, like I'm in love or I'm hate. Just, you're answering your questions, right. you never know what Right, no, I, I, that's fair. That's why, that's why, like, sometimes it's a trick question to get you to think, and sometimes I, I want you to think in a certain way, so I'm being quite clear, right? So do you feel like they need a doctor, or you don't feel like they would need a doctor? Treatment, doctor, you do. Okay. Okay. So you would feel much more relief that there's a doctor in the room, a doctor available, than not, right? You'd feel a lot more panicky, and now I mean feel like emotion, if the doctor wouldn't be available, right? Now, maybe you could conceptually understand that ultimately things by divine providence and God runs the world and you could use that to kind of calm yourself and reflect upon that, right? But that is not your experience of reality, is it? Okay. Now, does Hashem need a doctor to heal a person? So now, if you saw, if you, if you had that sense that you and Hashem are together looking out on the world and the person was sick... Would you feel any safer because there was a doctor available? No. Would you feel any more insecure because there was no doctor available? No. 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 This wouldn't matter. Um, there was a doctor in Crown Heights named Dr. Zellickson. Dr. Zellickson was actually a real doctor. It's important to emphasize before we continue the story, okay? Uh, a real doctor, like a medical doctor. He actually did some groundbreaking research in his early career, which I do not remember what it was about. Uh, internationally published. Um, and um, later in life, he was a, a, a very Hasidic Jew with a long beard, and he used to spend most of his days um, in prayer in the foyer of 770. So if you walk into 770 on the upstairs, there's the, to the left of the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's office, and there's a full foyer, and he used to like hang out there in that foyer and daven for hours every day. And people would sometimes come to the Rebbe with medical issues. And the Rebbe would sometimes tell them to consult with a doctor who cares about you. So, and sometimes the Rebbe would tell them to consult with Dr. Zellickson. And so people used to go to Dr. Zellickson and someone would come to Dr. Zellickson and say, the Rebbe sent me to you. Dr. Zellickson would ask, did the Rebbe send you to see a doctor and you chose me or did the Rebbe send you to see Dr. Zellickson? Mm-hmm. Now, if the Rebbe sent the person to go see a doctor and they chose Dr. Zellickson, Dr. Zellickson would treat them as a doctor should examine them, you know, diagnose, prescribe, the whole thing. If, on the other hand, they sent them to Dr. Zellickson, say, Rebbe, tell me to go see Dr. Zellickson, so, Rebbe, so Dr. Zellickson would not examine the patient, and he would tell them to eat an apple or have some chicken soup or take a walk every day, and the problem will be resolved. Regardless of what the medical problem was, right? So we're talking about serious medical issues. Mm. And the problem would be resolved. Now, what's the, the logic behind this? There is no No, there is. There is logic. There is logic. Does God need a doctor in order to heal somebody? No. No. God, God needs a doctor? No, God doesn't need a doctor, right? Yeah. So now the question is, does God, for whatever divine reason he has, want the healing to come through a doctor, right? Sometimes. Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Okay, and now we have, right, and now the question is, um, if he does want to come to the doctor, how obvious does he want it to be that it's really his doing, and how much does he want to kind of hide behind the doctor? Mm-hmm. So you end up with kind of a three, 
three basic possibilities. That if God chooses to heal somebody, option A is God wants to make it overt that he's doing it, no doctor involved, right? So sometimes people go to the Rebbe medical issues and the Rebbe would just say, what medical issue? And the medical issue would disappear. Like that, that also happened. Like people would like send in like whole, like long medical dot files about like having all sorts of like very serious illnesses and sometimes the Rebbe would say like, you should just get re-examined. I don't think there's a medical issue here. And they would get re-examined and then they're just like, it can't be the same patient because it just disappeared. So that's just like overtly God just heals the person. And then sometimes the healing goes through a doctor in such a way that God's hand in it, that God's doing, is camouflaged completely, right? But then there's room for a middle ground, right? Where God wants it to go through a doctor, but he also wants it to be kind of obvious. That's not really the doctor. It's him. Now, we could then have a whole class, what is the divine purpose in each of those modes, which we're not going to have right now. But that's God's judgment call, right? So now, when the Rebbe sent people to Dr. Zelikson, because the Rebbe knew that Dr. Zelikson, being a very Hasidic Jew, would know that if the person went to the Rebbe and the Rebbe sent them to Dr. Zelikson, Dr. Zelikson was just supposed to kind of give a pretense of a doctor. And so, because really this is one of these situations where God wants the healing to be obviously coming in it from the hand of God and just with a, a kind of plausible deniability, the person went to a doctor. Mm. Okay, so that had to do with and there's two elements here. There's the trust that Dr. Zelikson had of the Rebbe, but then there's also the fact that the Rebbe has that kind of a perspective. Now, that you can't, to, to decide which of those three options you're going to pick, right, you have to be standing kind of outside the framework of the world. Because within the framework of the world, right, how do you get better? The doctor. You go to a doctor, right? And you can ask for a miracle, but... But we all know that when we ask for miracles, we don't feel that that is as reliable or as real or as, or as grounded as like going to see a doctor. Right? And by the way, it's the same thing with them applied to making a living and all sorts of other things in life. Okay? So now if you add that, now if you move from that to love, right? So what does it mean to like love Hashem in, in a way where, where you're standing outside the world. So very simple questions like this. What makes Hashem attractive? Because right? you love people because they're, you find them attractive in some way, right? What makes... You know, what is lovable? I want to use the old word lovely, but you don't, you don't use that word anymore so much. But Lovable, att- attractive, alluring about God. Anyone want to offer? Okay. Would you agree that that's, you know, pretty cool? Infinite capacity to do anything? That's cool. Okay. Why is that insulting? To us, too? To God. That's all but that's why. Yeah, if I, were to, if I were to say, to go to my wife, I say, you know, I love you. You're really great at everything. Everything, everything that, like, you could possibly, you know, everything in terms of parenting and cooking and, and being, just like every activity on every scale of any human endeavor, you're just excelling it. Okay, but what, let, let's so flesh it out. What's the more? Is that because of that, there's a certain, like, I guess like a, a trust. It's different than a human. It's not like, oh, you're skilled at everything. It's more like you... I'm not, but I'm asking about love, not trust. Trust is very different than love. I use, start with an example of trust, we can just see the idea, but I want to move to love, because love, love, love and trust are not the same thing. Like we have to be, we have to, love is a feeling of 
closeness and attachment and wanting to be together. Well, maybe part of him, part of, part of what I said is that he knows, he knows you more than anyone can. Like, there's a knowing, and I think loving comes mm-hmm. from knowing. Mm-hmm. Okay. My, my feelings about love, at least. Mm-hmm. So I'm loving the fact that he knows me? That's what you're saying? I guess it starts with that, and then you'll, you'll never know him fully, but you'll want to try. Okay, but so, but I, I want I want to focus specifically. What about him makes you love him? So one thing you're saying that he knows you. Okay, well now I ask you a question. The fact that someone knows you makes you love them. I mean, is that true? That discovering that someone knows you very well, all of a sudden you feel a desire to be with them. I think it breeds connection. Mm. It can also be very invasive, right? Yes, it can. Okay, so let's Both. be more specific. So what what would need to be part of this picture in order for me to love? Him? The person, someone knowing a lot about me, it's, in and it of itself doesn't make me feel love. Actually, I could feel very, very the opposite of love. Personal and caring. Oh, caring. Good. Okay. There we go. There we got something. Right. If I have a synthesis of someone who knows me well and cares about me, and I see that in someone else, that usually doesn't bring about love. Right. If you encounter someone, it turns out they know a lot about you and they care for you. Right. Yes. Then we tend to naturally feel a wanting to be closer to that person. Okay. Fine. So good. So there's something about Hashem. Right. That he knows me, cares about me, and that's why I love him. The more I sense that, the more I experience that, the more I love him. Good? Okay. If Hashem, if I didn't exist, would he still, he wouldn't know me. Because like, if there was no me, if there would never been me, if he never created me, he would still be him, but he wouldn't know me. And he wouldn't care about me. Right. So am I loving him himself, or am I loving him in a certain context? Yeah, and I don't want to say this in the sense that it sounds like manipulative and, and evil. I don't mean to say that. What I mean to say is that I'm only able to appreciate him in some larger framework, in some sort of context. Okay, now, why do you love yourself? Why are you attached to yourself? Why do you care for yourself? Why, why are you important to yourself? Does that have some larger context? Survival, because if you weren't, you would die? Why, why would you care if you died? So, but that's a circle. You know, you're just saying you care about yourself. Why do you care about yourself? Why are you attached to yourself? Why are you important to yourself? Why do you matter to yourself? Why do you, so to speak, therefore love yourself? That's just part of being yourself. In other words, there's a big difference. Loving of self is different than loving of others. Loving of others is I find something about them that is appealing, that is attractive, that is lovable to me. That's not really what love of self is. Love of self. Well, if, let's think about in when you love someone, you want to be where? Close to them. Okay. Are you close to yourself? So, in in, in a kind of borrowed sense of the term, mm. you're in love with proximity. You're in love with yourself. You're like really into being oh. yourself. You're, everything you do involves yourself. It's all from whose point of view? Yours. Yourself. Okay. So now. The uh, incomplete tzaddik, if you took the world out of the picture, you took the larger context out of the picture, what would happen to their love of Hashem? It's not just the love is in between them and Hashem, so it's an obstacle to get past. It's also causing the love, right? The, the role Hashem plays in the world, the way the world reveals his greatness, right? 
the way the world, the way Hashem is involved in a person's life, those become the basis and the source of the love. But if, there, but if it was just Hashem on his own, it was just God, nothing else, what would happen to whatever the, the person finds lovable at Hashem? It, would, it wouldn't be there. What about the complete tzaddik? Why does the complete tzaddik love Hashem? Just for him. There's no... Right. In other words, the complete tzaddik has a kind of attachment to Hashem the way we have an attachment to ourselves. ourselves. What? How on planet Earth? How? We are in chapter 10, right? Well, I have to go back a few chapters. The second soul of a Jew is truly a part of God above. So the godly soul is actually... Part of God. Now, beginning chapter 10. When a person fortifies his godly soul, yeah? Mm-hmm. So, what happens if your godly soul is completely and totally manifest in your life? Well, then what's totally completely manifest? How you are a part of God, right? Whatever part of God means. But if you're a part of God, what does that mean about your attachment to God? Does it come because of something you appreciate? In other words, the, the, what is the basis of the complete tzaddik's love of Hashem is that his, not his capacity to know Hashem is revealed, but the fact that his soul is part of God. Now, whatever part of God means. But what it means for our purposes is that the soul is just as much attached to Hashem as Hashem is, so to speak, to himself. And so that's the basis of the love. Then the love is nothing to do with whether there's a world or not, whether God is great, whether God is infinite, whether God is kind, whether God is anything. So he's basically, are we saying he's in tune with the godly soul that's a part of God? That's right. That's the basis of love. Now, whereas the incomplete tzaddik is drawing on something else. They're drawing on the fact that being a godly soul, you have the capacity to know and appreciate and see God in the world. But it's because you're seeing God in the world, your love of God is constrained by the world, and it's a love that makes the form of desire, a desire to get closer. Okay? So, to, to, put, it, to put it like this, you, uh, I'm going to say something which is like destroying a cliche, but we're going to do it anyway. You know people say that if you love somebody, you just want them to be happy? You heard this idea? Okay, now let me, let's be honest with you. Is that really true? If I feel love, what do I want? I'm going to be very honest. What do I want? To be close to them. That's what I want. Now, do I want to be close to them when they're miserable? No, I want them to be close to them. Now, now, here we can measure love. We can say, okay, if your choice is to be close to them when they're miserable or not to be close to them at all, now we can measure how authentic is your love, right? So a shallower, more superficial love, if they're, not, if they're miserable, you don't want to be around them. A deeper love, even when they're miserable and suffering, you still want to be close to them, okay? But still what you want, really, is to be around them when? When they're a good place, right? But now, if your choice was to be around them and they'll be miserable. Or to never be around them ever again, but they would be happy and you love the person. Is it a natural manifestation of love? Really just let the person go? 
Think about that. You're in love with someone. Romantic love, parental love. I really don't care what kind of love it is, right? And the facts of the matter are, if they're with you, they'll be miserable. And if they're not with you, they'll be happy. Does love naturally lead to just pulling back and letting them go? Or does the opposite? The opposite. The opposite, right? In other words, the normal notion of love does not lead to an in, in essence desire for the other person to be happy. It's a pragmatic desire for them to be happy. It's much more fulfilling when I'm with you and you're, and you're happy than, than to be with you when you're miserable. But the happiness is not really the end goal of the love. The end goal of the love is to being close to the person, being near the person, being involved with the person, right? Why do parents have a hard time when their children become teenagers? Because the ch- children, for their development, need to grow up. Now, this is, again, where we can differentiate between love and, say, care. If I care for someone, it's not the same thing as loving them. Those are different. Respect, care, love, compassion, trust, these are not all synonyms. Good? Okay. Now, what about loving yourself? You can't not be close to yourself. Right, so that's not the issue. What does loving yourself give you a desire for? Very good. Everyone really does, right? The more self-love you're experiencing, the more it's important to you that you be. You hear the difference? Okay. What if I love someone like I love myself? Then what do I want? Right. I'm not really about being close to them. That's not the issue anymore, right? Now that's arguably a pretty rare thing. Maybe that kind of love develops in very, very deep ways and like parents and children, maybe spouses, right? But it's an interesting question, like, like how much that is actually just an aspect of just the desire to be close to the person. Now, let's go back to the tzaddik, right? What is the incomplete tzaddik? What is it that they, they love? What, 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 is the, what is the desire in the love? What are they desiring? Connection to God. They're desiring to be close to Hashem, yeah? What, what is the complete tzaddik desire? That it should be happy. See, there's a difference there between those two kinds of love? That's right. And therefore, is there, does he have any, on the experiential level, not once we add intellect to, just on the experiential level, does he have any emotional tolerance for ungodliness then? No. What about the income? But, but then, he had, but then that, what you're adding is you're adding, you're, you're, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're adding something to the love. In other words, we, we have to realize we're talking about a particular layer of the human being, which is the raw emotional experience. Now, obviously, once you then add this is what God wants, okay, that changes things, right? But if my, so my, if my raw emotional experience is I, all I want is Hashem to be happy, I have for myself zero tolerance for anything ungodly, right? Now, it could be that God wants something that involves ungodliness and then I'll have to like adopt that with using my kind of mature rationality and approach that. But that's different. But the incomplete side, like what do they want? They want to be close to Hashem. They're already working within a framework they've somewhat compromised, they've already accepted there's, a, there's, a, there's limitations about things. There's something that's going to make distant. I want to get past the distance. But, but those, but the, and, and it's also their appreciation of Hashem comes through the reality of things. So there is there's some acceptance of 
the world as a given built into that whole experience that's just not true for the complete tzaddik. And what this has to do with actually is which level of the godly soul is being fully manifest. If it's the godly soul's ability to know Hashem, then you would be a what kind of a tzaddik? An incomplete tzaddik. But if it's the godly soul's unity with Hashem that's being fully revealed, then you would be what kind of tzaddik? A complete tzaddik. One kind of love is that the tzaddik knows Hashem and therefore wants to be close to Hashem. The other kind of love is that tzaddik is at one with Hashem and therefore wants Hashem to be happy. So the first type of love has some to- has the hatred. It's not an absolute hatred. There's some tolerance for the way the world works. And the second kind of love, the associated hatred, has no tolerance for how the world works because it's not a product of the world. It's not a product of existence. What's why this? are you starting? What? Why are the two connected? What do you mean, why? tolerance for the world and, well, and if, wanting if, closest Hashem? Because wanting closest Hashem comes about because the world has enabled me to get to know Hashem. The world is also the thing that's in be- standing in between me and Hashem. And so the whole experience is wrapped up with how the world works. It's embedded. It's a part of something. There's, there's not just Hashem. There's, there's also what it is about, what it is about the, uh, Hashem that the world is able to inform me about Him. There's how the world makes Him distant from me. The world is part of this, of this experience. So it's like me, Hashem, and the world in between. And I'm talking That's right. To get close to right. Because your whole, your whole sense of Hashem came via and through the world. And then the other... The other one is just there's, there's no world involved. The soul is intrinsically connected to Hashem. And therefore the soul wants Hashem to be happy. What's the starting point? For what? Of reaching this. Like the first step is having this yeah, but that's all we're doing. We're, we're, what we're actually trying to understand in this chapter is the effect of the love on the animal soul. Right. And that happens via the associated feeling of hatred. Right. right. It, but this love. Yeah. How, how does one have this love? I know, like, practically speaking. I will tell you. Which love? The love of wanting The love of wanting Hashem to be happy. That's right. You have to be born with that. that that's, you can be born with it. But we're all born with it. Right. So later on in Tanya, the Alter right. So the, 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 uh, an analogy for this idea is that the love is kind of compared, the love is kind of compared to um, fire. So in fire, you have, like if you have a, like a candle, so you have the, the wick. And the wick is drawing in the oil, and then that's burning, right? And the, what's burning the oil, that fire is very hot, and it's also darker. So if you ever look at a candle very closely, you'll see what's, the, the flame as it's right next to the wick. It's kind of bluish, blackish. And that's actually the hottest part of the flame, and that's the part of the flame that's actually the burning, the actual burning and combustion. And then if you look, there's like this whitish, 
yellowish part of the flame, which is actually hovering around the blue flame. And depending exactly on how the wick is charged, you might even touch the wick at all. Okay? And that actually part of the flame is not as hot, but it is brighter. So if you want, this is important, if you want to produce heat, what color do you want your flame to be? Blue. Blue. Have you ever looked at a gas stove? Mm, it's, um, if you want your flame to produce light, what, what do you want yellow. your flame to you want Yellow, right? Different, okay. Cool. So now here's the thing. If you want your love of Hashem to help refine you as a human being, help you overcome your evil inclination, that's one kind of love. And then there's a kind of love which comes from the innate capacity of the godly soul to be no god or even greater than that, to sense its own oneness with Hashem. And so the love of a tzaddik is always is viewed as kind of like the, the yellow-white part of the flame. And the love of the non-tzaddik, the baini, the person who's trying to get to appreciate Hashem more, to overcome challenges, that's like the blue part of the flame. And so the way it works is now, can you have the yellow part without the blue part? No. Wait, wait can you explain how is that... I don't want to explain that part. I just want to say that there is this more basic level. I, I want to just skip how that is. Can you have in the in the can you have the yellow part of the flame without the blue part of the flame? So, if you, even though as far as the godly soul innately has this love of a tzaddik, or even the capacity to love Hashem like a complete tzaddik, in order for that to be brought on the life of the person, there needs to be something, they need, that the proper setup needs to be in place, okay? And so, as the check, and so, there needs to be this, this fortifying the divine soul, waging a war, and if you do this enough, what ends up happening is higher and higher and higher levels can be revealed. If you want to use now an intellectual example, can you, do you have the intellectual capacity to understand calculus? No. Yes, you do. No. You do, you do. You actually do. You, you do. You do. There are two reasons why there are two reasons why you do not understand calculus. Calculus is a very lofty level of math. I don't know how to say it. What integrals, differential equations, things like that. You do. Okay. 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 <laughs> you don't know calculus. Okay, here's the thing. You do. You do have the intellectual ability. However, however, number one, is there more basic stuff you have to understand first? Yes. Do you understand the more basic stuff? No. That's number one. Number two, and, and this is a separate question, is it easy for you? No. And now we have a rule with people. That which is harder requires more what requires more time but more than time requires more dedication and now we have to ask the question how important is it to you what there you go so now but 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 had it been something that i was you know having any kind of success then perhaps it would have been interesting that's right so what i want in other words like this some people some people some people it's the 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 they're naturally, there's, there's kind of three things. Some people are naturally good at things. So it's just easy. So that doesn't require so much effort. Some people, they're not naturally good, but 
there, but the feedback success rate mm. is sufficient that, that the growth kind of provides its own motivation, right? They put in effort, they see the reward, and that itself feels good. And there's kind of like this kind of... So, like, there are people who could, you know, do a very advanced math, not because they're interested, not because they're working hard, just because it's just, like, it's easy, right? It's, like, not a big deal. There are other people, it's hard, but the, the, the level of feedback in terms of feeling like you're accomplishing something is regular enough and, and sufficient enough that it provides its own reward. And so it becomes, like, an intrinsically meaningful activity to that person, okay? Even though it can be very hard for them. But then there's people that it's that the, the amount of dedication involved is not proportional to the feedback they get in understanding it. And so unless there's some very powerful extrinsic motivation, then they're not going to be dedicated enough to do it. But that's not reflecting their intellectual capacity. Now, for instance, if you were, God forbid, really impoverished, and the only way out of poverty was doing work that involved understanding calculus. Mm. That would really change things. You know how we know that changes things? Because mm. people, when they're in those kinds of situations, all of a sudden discover. Now, overnight, right? No, okay. Now, I don't mean to impugn you individually because we all have the same issue, okay? So now going back. So that, the, the capacity of the godly soul to love Hashem, like the incomplete tzaddik or the complete tzaddik, that's not necessarily beyond any individual person, mm. per se. However, for some people, their soul, it's set up that it's very easy for them. Mm. For some people, the process of growth has enough growth, feedback, growth, feedback that they, they, they get there. For some of us, it's just so overwhelmingly difficult that if we could just maintain like not sinning, like that's like good enough for us. And so we never even get anywhere close to that whole thing. So when you're asking like what, how does it work? Like what's the starting point? It kind of really depends what you're asking. You're asking on the level of the soul. The level also has to do with intrinsic things about the soul. But if you're asking about the person, well, not every person is the same. So if you have someone like say Avraham, well, it was the most intuitive and easy thing for him because his soul was so vibrant in his thing that, that so that getting that sense of it just came out, right? And for many of us, right, the idea of caring enough about our relationship with Hashem that we, we get to the point that we, it matters in us, enough to us to abstain from sinning is already, like, seems almost an impossible task and one that we're not necessarily so dedicated to pursuing. Well, then these, these capacities of the soul are just completely, be, feel like they're completely beyond us. And later on, time is going to say, how much should we accept that state of affairs? How much should we deny that? So it depends. It, in essence, the soul being godly means that on a shallower level, it's able to know Hashem. And on a deeper level, it's actually one with Hashem. And therefore, that's the basis of these two kinds of love. And when they're intense enough, right, they're, they're, they're real enough in the lived experience of the person, the associated hatred is going to have an effect on the animal soul. Okay? For being a tzaddik, yeah. yeah. To be a tzaddik is all about love. Now, I want to be clear. Serving Hashem is not all about love, but being a tzaddik is all about love. I mean, that's how we're using the word. The word tzaddik, gomor, complete, or gomor, incomplete, is referring to the kind of love they have, right? It's all about love. Really. You know the, the, you know the, the it's called Lubavitch, 
the town Lubavitch. You know what the town Lubavitch actually means? What? Love. What? I can never say this word. My wife's Russian, so you can say it. Luba. Luba is love. And Vich is a town. So love town. (laughs) Town of love. Village of love. That's what Lubavitch actually means. That makes so much sense. But when Tzadik is serving Hashem, Uh is it service of Hashem is not all about love, but Tzadik is all about love? Later chapters. I left that because I just want you to know there's more out there. We're not going to go into this. Okay, good? Okay. So now, let's, let's um, start the paragraph again from the beginning. The incomplete righteous, incomplete righteous is he who does not hate the sitrach with an absolute hatred, therefore does not absolutely abhor evil. And as long as the hatred and scorn of evil are not absolute, there must remain some vestige of love and pleasure in it. And the foul garments have not absolutely... Entirely and absolutely been shed. Okay, so if the, this tzaddik, even though all he feels is a desire to get closer to Shem, we have to say that his animal soul still actually has some sort of attachment, some sort of an appreciation, some sort of desire and pleasure from things which are ungodly. Right? Because it's only the absolute hatred that renders it free of the garments. And if that's the case, therefore the evil has not actually been converted to goodness since it is still has some hold in the filthy garments. Okay. So now you can ask the question, well, then why do, then does this person feel no desire towards anything ungodly? And the answer to that is, except that it is nullified because of its minute quantity and is accounted as nothing. Therefore, such a person is called righteous in whom evil is subjugated and surrendered to him. Accordingly, his love of God is also not perfect with the result that he is called incompletely righteous. Okay. So now there's this notion here that it is that the evil part of the animal soul is not transformed, it's been subdued. Okay? And he uses the word in Hebrew, battle. Okay? Now, battle is a, a, is a word that shows a blind chassidus. Does anyone know what the word battle means? Something is battle or the, the noun bittle. Like nullified? Nullified, that's exactly what it means. And we're now going to have a short class on the word bittle. All right. What is the meaning of the word bittel? Nullification. Something is bittel means it is nullified. What does nullified mean? Nullification, it means it is? A non-entity. A non-entity. Good. Okay, good. So if someone tells you that bittel means, what are some other things you might have heard that bittel means? Uh, what? No, in the context of chassidus. Anyone ever heard it translated some other ways? Self-sacrifice. What? Subservience. Acceptance. Acceptance. Okay. These may be forms of bittal, but bittal means it is not. It is nullified. It is negated. Okay? So, the first thing I want to do is have a little... Is Hasidus as a school of thought pro- Bittal, pro-nullification, or anti-bittal, anti-nullification? Pro-bittal, whatever it is. What? Definitely pro-bittal in some way. Okay. It mentions it a lot. It does mention a lot, right? Generally in a positive context. Okay. Why? Because nothing really exists anyway except for Russia. 
Right. In other words, the, the notion of bittel is in the context of that the only thing that's really true or real or relevant is Hashem, right? So whatever is the not Hashem part of the equation should be, lab- should be reduced or considered as a non-entity. Now, that's overly simplistic, but nonetheless accurate. Okay. I will give you an example. Way back in the day, they used to have these things called radios. Radios sometimes have static. Now, if you would like to hear the broadcast clearly, you would like there to be no static, right? You like to negate the static, right? Why? It's getting in the way. It's getting in the way, right? Now, you also have a body. A body. Would you like to negate your body? Think about this carefully. Sometimes. Sometimes. Give me some examples. That's a better answer. Like, are we talking specifically physical or like even thoughts? Let's do a physical. You have a stomach ache. Very good. If you have a stomach ache, right? Well, this goes back into the question of how much we're going to have mature thinking about it. So is it want your body per se to not exist or some aspect of your body to not exist? Well, okay, but the pain is symptomatic of something. What's it symptomatic of? The disorder. And the disorder is symptomatic of the fact that the body is not just a medium for you to live life. It also has all sorts of other parts to it that kind of break down and get in the way, right? If you could have a body which was just a medium to live life through, and therefore could never break down, never get sick, that would be great, right? Yeah. So if we think about the body, there's kind of two levels of the body. There's the body as a vehicle, as a medium of the soul. And then there's the body as a physical and biological organism which breaks down and gets sick. If we could have one without the other, would we? Yeah. Yeah. Now, can you? No. No. Okay, so that's an unfortunate thing. But to the degree to which you could, it's that... In other words, if you could have a body that did not need to, could not break down, did not need to be fixed, did not need to be maintained, right? That would be great. Now, such a body would be, would be kind of a body in, 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 in function, but not in its physicality, right? Okay. Now, by the way, when Hashem created human beings, did they have such a body? Before the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? We did, right? That's why people were gonna, would have been immortal and never get sick and all that kind of great stuff. Okay? Um, so now what I want to point out here is some, sometimes negating something is a simple, this is bad, we would like to get rid of it. Sometimes it is a quality or property of a thing that is interfering or negative and we'd like to get rid of. And sometimes we can't get rid of it entirely because it's kind of linked to something positive, so we just want to minimize it, right? So bittel can mean many, many different things in different contexts. But it always means that there is the thing that is of value, in the case of Chassidus, the truth of God. And then there's the thing which runs counter to that. And we would like that thing that runs counter to that to be gotten rid of, removed, made transparent, you know, pick the context. Does that make sense? Okay. Right, so now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about different kinds of nullification. Okay? Um, 
There are some kinds of nullific. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to start with a halachic example. Okay. Um, this is a pretty famous example. I think many of you have heard of this. If you have some milk that drops into a meat dish, like say chicken soup, is the meat dish still kosher? Right. Depends on many factors. One of the factors is the relative quantities, right? How much? If there is 60 times of the meat dish against the volume, this is in volume, against the volume of the milk, then assuming that it is all, it's a liquidy thing and it's mixed all together and a bunch of other factors, then it is still kosher. Good? By the way, are you allowed to pour milk into your chicken soup at a rate of less than 1 60th? No. No. Okay. Right, no. This is if it happens. Okay, good. So we say that the milk is bottle. Bottle means it is not there. And we say bishishim in 60 because it is the 60 times volume that creates that nullification. Good? Okay. So as far as Torah is concerned, does that chicken soup have any milk in it? Yes or no? No. You sure? Yeah. So now I have that chicken soup and another bit of milk drops it. Let's use numbers. So I have 60 ounces of chicken soup and it falls one ounce of milk. You ask the rabbi, is it kosher? He says, yes, it's a rabbi, but there's milk there. He says, no, there's no milk. It's bottle. It's, it's not there. I mean, Halacha says it's not there. So he's like, okay, fine, rabbi. And then another ounce of milk drop falls in the soup. Now is the soup kosher? No. Why not? It's exceeded the amount that's no longer bottle. But you said it was no longer there. So it's gone. considers the milk to be there now. Oh, so Halacha just changed their mind? There's a threshold. What? But but once the milk is, but but once the milk is bottle, so it's gone. It's like it's not there. So now you add. You can just keep yeah. <laughs> and by the way, I would like to point out that there are situations in halacha where that is the case. Sometimes halacha does work that way. There are things in halacha which is called tipin tipin bottle, which you add a little bit, it's bottle, and you add a little bit more, and, it's, and so sometimes halacha does work that way. In the case of milk and chicken soup, it doesn't, and that's what I want you to understand is that. There are rules to this. We have to conceptualize it. Like, in what sense is the milk not there? In the sense that you're able to eat it. Okay. So, the effect that the milk has on the status of the food, it's as if the milk is not... There, but it's physically But it's... I don't care about physics. Physically, I asked a chemist. What I consider it is, is it halachically still there? Is there still halachically milk in that soup? Well, yes. yes. And the way I know is because if you add more milk... Oh, so now there's two ounces. So that means it's not like that first ounce magically came back. So the halacha terminology is they use it actually by a nice expression. They say the milk was sleeping. As one, there's, in other words, they say when the milk falls into the chicken soup, it was milk, but the milk was sleeping. And when the milk is sleeping, it can't make anything forbidden. But what happens when more milk comes in? The milk, that's literally, it says, that's the, literally the halacha explanation, is, the halacha terminology is chayzer v'neir. It goes back and wakes up. And now that you have two ounces of milk and they're going screaming, hey, we're milk inside the chicken soup. Well, now, it's like, wow. if someone is in the room sleeping, do they bother you? Not nearly the same way if they're, if they're awake. Depends if they're snoring. That's true, but we're going to, we're, the milk does not snore. Okay? So, it's still there. It's still milk. Halachas didn't say the milk disappeared halachically. Sometimes we do say that kind of thing. That's not what we're saying here. We're saying it's still milk. It's still here. But its ability to make the food forbidden has gone to sleep. So it's still there, but is it as though it's not there? It's, so for what 
in what sense? In the sense that it is not able to project its milkiness onto the rest of the soup. In other words, it's being, it's like if you have one person talking very softly and one person talking very loudly, assuming that the soft is soft enough and the loud is loud enough, you cannot actually hear, right? But now if you add a few more people speaking softly, what happens? Now, that, now you can hear them all together, right? Okay. So what's happening is that the quantity of the meat, and this is a, the meat taste, overwhelms any effect that the milk tastes have, and therefore it doesn't create the prohibition of milk and meat. But it's not that the milk is not actually there, that's there and it's milk, and so you add more milk, what happens? It's alive. It's forbidden, okay? Now, Everyone knows that blood is forbidden? Now that it consumes blood? Okay. So I have my chicken soup, and in falls one ounce of milk. I'm okay, right? Because 60 times, we're good, right? 60 ounces of chicken soup, one ounce of milk, we're good. And then in falls an ounce of blood, but not an ounce of blood. It's a little bit more than one ounce of blood. A tiny bit more than an ounce of blood. Now is my chicken soup kosher. Over one ounce, and I only have how many ounces of chicken yeah. soup? No, but you have 61 ounces. I, I have 61 ounces because I have the milk, right? And so the milk partners up with the chicken soup, and it's 61. I am very serious. That's weird. Why? Now, why does that work? Like it's helping. It's helping. Because remember, when we said the milk was bottle, it's not there. In what sense is it not there? Only with regard to its ability to. Project its milkiness. But I don't need its milkiness. I just need its volume. That is so weird. Oh, no. It's kosher? It's kosher. Now, what happens if we then add an ounce of forbidden fat? Because there's another prohibition called forbidden fat. An ounce plus. 63. So now it's 62, right? Okay. Then you add an ounce of... Herbal soup. <laughs> <laughs> One second. Then you add another ounce plus of... What's another thing that's prohibited? Now, um, let's say you add another ounce of, of um, something liquidy from a pig. I don't know, some melted lard. What? What? But I want you need, I want something. I want something liquidy that dissolves. Yeah. Gelatin is gonna be a problem because it changes the consistency. I need something that can just what? They dissolve. I need something, some, so some, 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 like whatever, just, I don't know, like, like gravy, gravy, like, I don't know, the drippings of, 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 of pork gravy, right? So, again, now I have, so I have, so I have 60 chicken soup plus one milk plus one plus of blood plus one plus of forbidden fat. So that's 63. Now I've got, right? Then I can add a, like, and the rule is like this. As long as each thing is in a separate halacha category, it's a separate prohibition, they keep Increasing the volume because what the, the, in what sense are they bottle in the sense they can't project their Weird. presence in terms of what they are into it, but they're still there and so they still contribute oh. to the volume. So, gross. so that's all kosher. It's all kosher. Yeah. Wild, isn't it? Yeah. What? Wild, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. There's a, there's an old joke is that the rabbi comes into the kitchen and he starts doing stuff. And his wife says, "Get out! Get out! Get out!" He says, "What?" He says, you're making the kitchen not kosher. What do you mean? This was halachically permitted for this reason, and this halachically permitted for this reason. He has all the halachic leniencies and loopholes and roundabout things. She's like, no, no, no. A kosher kitchen is all the dairies on this side, all the meats on that side, and just don't make it complicated. 
Um, so the common practice in Jewish households is do we, do we like make all sorts of complicated things, but in fact, there's a lot of interesting things in kosher kitchens. So if something happens by mistake, very often it's actually after the fact, bidyeved, not the end of the world. Okay. So now, so is the milk there? Yes. yes. But in terms of the effect of a milk on meat, it's in that sense, it's not there. It's there in the sense that it's still milk, so if more milk comes in, it's going to create a problem. And it's there in terms of its volume. Its volume contributes to negating, nullifying other things. So it's not not there. It's there, but it's just one aspect of it has been negated, the problematic aspect, the projecting its milkiness onto the meat. And therefore it's permitted. Okay. What happens when a tzaddik, on the one hand, loves Hashem as a tzaddik, on the other hand, his animal soul still enjoys schnitzel? So the animal soul really enjoys schnitzel, and the godly soul loves, and the godly soul loves God, the way a tzaddik loves God. Not a complete tzaddik, incomplete tzaddik. What happens? What happens to the, this person's desire for schnitzel? Didn't we say it's like all or nothing yesterday? That was the complete tzaddik. Oh, this is, uh, so part of it. So the, the desire for schnitzel is? So it's not, it's not transformed, it's nullified. It's nullified. Now, does it mean it's not there? No. No. What part of it is nullified? The part that loves. The part is the, the part, also remember, when the milk falls into the chicken soup, and it's less than one, it's one sixtieth or less, right? Is the milk not there? No. From a, for, not again, not asking you physically, chemically, you just ask the chemist. I'm asking you halakhly, is the milk considered to be there? No. Yes. The, the it's, it's now considered to be 61, vo, 61 ounces of volume, so there's something else there. And it's considered to be milk, because if more milk would fall in, what would happen? Then it would be prohibited. The only thing is, what's not there? Problem. The problematic effect it has, right? In that sense, we say the milk has, so to speak, gone to sleep. It does no, it has no problematic influence, but it's still present. Yes. Okay. So the tzaddik, on the one hand, loves Hashem, and the other hand, his animal soul still has a desire for schnitzel. So what happens? Now, what is what happens to that desire for schnitzel? It sleeps. It's asleep. And therefore, does he ever feel a desire for schnitzel? No. Nah, 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 nah. Unless more it comes along. Unless what? Right. If, 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 if his love for Hashem were to die down enough, right, and the hatred therefore were to die down enough, and therefore the love for schnitzel will become sufficiently more intense, it could wake up. That's true. But even without that, what's the another place where he could start to feel desire for schnitzel? No, that, that's the same thing. It's like more visible, more present in his life, no? What about the milk? The milk, the milk, it doesn't have a negative influence on the, on the chicken soup. Does it have positive effects on the chicken soup? It tastes good. I'm not talking, I'm halachic positive effects. <laughs> halachic positive effects. Well, what what would happen, it has volume, right? Mm-hmm. And now that there's more volume, what happens if some other prohibition falls into the soup? It helps. So this tzaddik, they, they enjoy schnitzel, right? Now, would they ever feel any desire or enjoyment from schnitzel if it would in any way detract from their closeness of Hashem, with Hashem? No, they couldn't because it's completely bottle. 
But what if that desire for Shinzo wouldn't contra- go against their closeness with Hashem? It would actually enhance their closeness with Hashem. Then could they feel the enjoyment of the Shinzo? Yes. Can you give me a situation where enjoying food is actually part of being close to Hashem? Shabbos. Shabbos. So such a tzaddik on Shabbos would actually feel a desire for what? For Shinzo. But if it's not Shabbos, Right. Like, have you ever, have you ever, like, known that you were hungry, you needed to eat, and the food that was available is not appetizing, but you, like, need to eat? Yeah. Okay, so you, like, kind of, like, eat because you have to eat? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's how this, this tzaddik feels about the schnitzel on Friday, right? But then all of a sudden, it's Shabbos, and now how does he feel about the schnitzel? Amazing. He enjoys the schnitzel. He wants the schnitzel. What happened? No, it didn't wake up. The condition changed. Now the desire is something which is enhancing his closeness to Hashem. Because remember, what's the thing that's negated is its ungodly influence on him. Right? Just just, again, going back to the milk. When the milk falls into the chicken soup, what's being negated? The milk? The milk is there. Halakhically, the milk is there. What's being negated? It's problematic effect on the chicken soup, Right? So what's being negated about this Sadik's desire for schnitzel, enjoyment of schnitzel? The bad effects. Of it. The bad effect it has on closeness with Hashem, which is all the time, with the exception of Shabbos, Shabbos, Yom Tov. So on Shabbos and Yom Tov, does he enjoy the schnitzel? Mm-hmm. Now here's the cool thing: does he have to make a conscious decision? No. Or is that actually something just experiential? It's experiential. Okay. What if this tzaddik still, in, still like, has some, some tendencies towards anger mm. in the animal soul? Does he ever feel angry towards other people? Yes, sometimes. And so when it's a mitzvah to be angry, would he feel the anger? Very naturally. Yes, but if it's not in the service of Hashem to be angry, would he, he would naturally not get angry. What if this, you know? Now, let's contrast this with the perfect tzaddik. How does the perfect tzaddik feel about eating schnitzel on Shabbos? Doesn't enjoy it? No. Let me ask you a question. Are you supposed to enjoy Shabbos? Mm-hmm. How come you don't eat cardboard on Shabbos? It's not enjoyable, right? It's not because you're trying to be holy. It's just not enjoyable, right? Well, if your animal soul's ability to enjoy has been divorced from the ability to enjoy the culinary experience of food, right? Well, then you can't exactly enjoy Shabbos by eating food, can you? Not because you're trying to be super spiritual. It's just like you, you can't. But if the only reason you don't enjoy the food, right, or whatever it is, is because of its ungodly effect, then when the effect is not ungodly then you can, and you would, right? So some tzaddikim really enjoy their food on Shabbos, and some tzaddikim, they don't. That's like people would be like paying attention to that to figure out who's a complete tzaddik. Like, oh, you really did not like, like you did not. Yeah, like but you would have a very hard time saying, t- telling because, you know, it's like very hard to know what's really going on inside a person. I would use that as an excuse. I'd be like, he didn't like the kugel. It's obviously because he's a complete tzaddik, not because like, I cooked it wrong, you know? <laughs> Well, no, what you do is that the quality of the Shabbos food is contingent on the guests. Oh. That's, that's the Jewish tradition. <laughs> you didn't know that? 
that say about my cooking? That means that if the guests don't like the food, then who do they have to blame? Themselves. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the quality of the Shabbos food depends on the guests. Everyone knows this. That's why you only compliment the food. <laughs> because what you do is you compliment, oh, this is really good. You say, well, the quality of the food is, the, is like based on the quality of the guests. And therefore, no guest ever says how the food is bad now. <laughs> okay. So, baby, you don't it's have to feel bad. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, there was, there was, this is, this is neither here nor there, but it's a funny story. There was one tzaddik who, when he would, he would eat his soup, he would get his soup and he would take the spoon and he would circle the spoon around for like a few minutes. Did I tell you this story ever? Yeah. He'd circle the spoon around for a while and then he'd eat one spoonful of soup and then he was done. And so one of the chassidim, because you know the chassidim have this way of like trying to imitate their rabbis, that's a thing that the chassidim do. So he also used to stir the spoon in the soup for like five, ten minutes and then take one spoonful. And tzaddik asked him, what do you do it? He says, I'm doing what the Rebbe does. He says, well, I'm gathering all the godly sparks in the soup to my spoon and then just eating them because it's the godly sparks that give you the, give you the life. It's not the soup. And so if I can get all the sparks into one little spoonful, I don't need to eat the whole soup. But, you know, you, you're so unholy, this godly sparks keep running away from you, so you have to eat the whole bowl of soup because they keep avoiding your spoon. <laughs> That's a Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 What? Life is not nice. <laughs> not everything in life is not being nice. But you mentioned a story about being nice. There, there was, there was. I think it was. I think it was the famous Chassid. I think it was the famous Rebbe of Zush of Anapoli, but I could be wrong. No, was it Zusha? I don't remember who it was. It was one, one of the... One of the one, there was a Hasidic rabbi. There was a few of them. So his wife was, was actually... Um, how should I put this nicely? She was a shrew. She was like a really <laughs> nasty human being who like really just... You know, like some people are nasty, right? There's men who are nasty. There's women who are had a wife who was like that, but I, there was not, it could have been Zusha, it could have been someone I don't remember who it was. So his wife, and she used to just, he would come home from Shul, she would curse him. She would like curse him, she would burn his food. She would like just be spiteful. She was just a mean, spiteful woman. She made his life a living hell. Um, and one time, and again, I don't remember if this was with Abzush or another, or another tzaddik. And he would like, like, he wouldn't fight back, he wouldn't argue. He was just like, you know, that's the way it was. I mean, and um, one time he comes home and his wife starts cursing at him and screaming at him and like having a tirade. Um, and at some point he starts yelling back at her. I think it's Reb Zusha, but it could have been someone else. Because there's a few, there's a few tzaddikim who had wives like this. And, I mean, there's, there's definitely a few women who had husbands like this too who are very righteous, right? It doesn't always work out that the righteous man and the righteous woman get married. I mean, like, you know, life is, God works in mysterious ways. Anyway, so... She, um, so Chassidim after is like, why did you do that? Like, you, for, for years you haven't said anything mean back. You're always like very patient. And he says, because I could see how hurt she was that I was ignoring her. Wow. Like, she wanted that, like, sometimes people just like, like, that was the old place she was in. She like, wanted me to like say something back to like, validate her anger. So, like, I yelled back and then she's like, ah, now we're fighting. Like, oh. 
So suddenly being nice to people can be very interesting. No, it's not usual nice. But sometimes people are in a very, you know, interesting place in life. Anyway, so um, a complete tzaddik, you know, a, a complete tzaddik, they, for them to do something because they find that thing Enjoyable, even in a context which it's in the service of Hashem and helps a bringing person to Hashem, for them, that just doesn't work. Because for them, it's like eating cardboard. But for the incomplete tzaddik, their, their animal soul really still has some of these attachments left. Now, they're, they're bottle. In what sense are they bottle? Like the milk and the chicken soup. They only have an effect that's conducive to the relationship with Hashem. But deep down, they still have a kind of an attachment that I'm enjoying the signs of uh, uh, their animal soul still feels connected to ungodly things. It's just that can't have any effect in their life that has a negative effect on their closeness to Hashem because of the intensity of the love that they feel. So it appears to them, is what we learned in the beginning chapter, it appears to them as if they have no negative desires. They have no negative traits. That is, it appears to them as if they have no attachments to anything unholy. So effectively they have no evil inclination. There's no voice inside their head telling them to go away from Hashem. But that's not because deep down they are only holy. That's because the holiness is overwhelming and drowning out any possible negative effect of the animal soul. But only the negative effects. Does it still have the positive effects? Yes. So does the complete thought just suffer through his life? I'm saying... No, not at all. But he has to eat them. Well, not, I mean, not necessarily. We should remember. Not necessarily. I mean... Right, they don't have to eat. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a two-year-old sitting with a book without pictures, just words? Reading a book without... Sure they do. They'll do it. They do it for a few minutes, maybe, to imitate adults, and then what happens? They get bored. Why? Because how interesting is it to look at squiggles? Now, what about an adult? How long can they sit with a book? For hours, right? Depending on what the content is, right? Well, what if you don't experience the squiggles, you experience the content, the meaning? And more than just the literal meaning of the words, the subtext, right? It's very engaging, right? So what if instead of experiencing the world, you experience the divine meaning behind everything? Is life so miserable? No. And therefore, maybe Tzadik could do very weird things. Because imagine, imagine that you were illiterate, and everyone you knew was illiterate, and you encountered someone reading a book for hours. They would look to you very strange, right? So how do you think it is for it to encounter a, a complete tzaddik? They seem to do things that are sometimes very, very strange because they're not interfacing with reality the way the rest of us are. How? How what? It's not nice. It's not meant to be not nice. But like, how do you know the difference between like delusional and actually lofty? For yourself or for other people? Like for other people. For other people, you have to make a judgment call. Um, and for yourself. For, your, for, your, for yourself, here's a pretty good thing, right? Which is, look, you look for proportionality. In other words, 
are are you experiencing things which like 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 think about a bell curve, right? Are you experiencing things which according to Torah are on like the extreme end of like the upper end of the bell curve? But at the same time, that your struggles are pretty average struggles. So for instance, you're struggling with like basic ego issues and getting upset when things don't go your way. And you also feel like you're experiencing prophecy. Well, there's an inconsistency there. Right, so proportionality is like a good, a good measure. Now with other people, it's of limited use because you can only see them from the outside. You can't see them sure. from the inside, right? No, it's not a leap of faith. It's like everything else in life. We have the Torah. We have a certain, we have standards in the Torah. The Torah is not given to angels. The Torah is given to people. So there are certain standards that when a person meets certain criteria, you should assume X about them. When they meet other criteria, you should assume Y about them. Mm-hmm. And you do not have to worry that, like, could you be wrong? Of course you could be wrong. You could be wrong about anything. But, like, you can't live life worrying if you're wrong. You have to wor- wor- live life as saying, like, am I approaching something um, in a reasonable way? And from the Torah's point of view, are my following this criteria the Torah sets up. So, for instance, um, one of the things that, that, that we know is that uh, a tzaddik doesn't have an evil inclination, which means they don't sin. So, someone who um, sins, probably, sh- you know, I, I would probably be suspicious of him claiming to experience tzaddik-like things with any sort of, like, it could happen because Hashem sometimes does things to people to help give them a boost in life. I'm not talking about that, but like, so if, if, so if someone is saying, I love Hashem and the only thing I want is to make Hashem happy. And I know that this person is like, they're, they, they, they like struggle with keeping kosher or something else. They, 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 they struggle with being respectful to other people. Like they're just not, you know, or they're, or they're, or, or they're, or they're not honest as the Torah requires in business. Well then, they're clearly like that's, I mean, either they're, they're, they're not being honest with themselves or they're trying to mislead other people. That's not true. Later on, the altar actually says that this notion of just wanting to make Hashem happy, which he encourages all to try and engage, and he says it, it should feel like an illusion. It should feel like you're fooling yourself. And he has to explain why, nonetheless, it's valuable. Mm-hmm. To say I'm doing this to make Hashem happy should not feel authentic if you're being honest with yourself. Because remember, like, who's the person that your love means you want them to be happy? Yourself. Every other person, what means you? What does it mean you love them? Right. And the people that you actually don't put any effort to be close to, do you even really love them? Mm-hmm. The people that you're okay not seeing for extended periods of time. Okay. So then you can ask the question: Do I even love Hashem at all? <laughs> so, but and even if I really do desire to be close to Hashem, the sense that what I really want is just for Him to be happy, we should feel a little delusional. And then Altar says, not why nonetheless it's important to think that way. That's later on in time. So I, I think if you use this notion of proportionality, and you can look at some of the other criteria sets of the Torah, but, but you can never, once you adopt a question of like absolute skepticism, like how can I ever know anything, the, the answer to that is you can never know anything once you adopt a, a fundamentally skeptical point of view. Like how do you even know that you can trust your senses? How do you know you're not a brain in a vat? Like, People you, question that. Right, no, so, so it's, 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 yeah. in other words, it, 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 it's, a, it's a psychological question rather than a rational question. In other words, it's like, if I'm not in that state, should I enter that state? And if I'm in that state, can I leave that state? But in that state, there is never an answer to how you know anything. I hear that. So, but from the normal state of affairs, like, you know, it's like, 
if you if you see inconsistency in yourself, then you probably should be suspicious that the abnormal thing or the unusual thing is probably the incorrect thing, and the, the more normal thing is probably a more accurate sense of yourself. So an incomplete Sadiq could know that he's in this because based on whether or not he enjoys things for all purposes? Yeah, knowing that you're an incomplete Sadiq is... You can know that you're an incomplete... The thing is, is later on Tanya says that a, a Bainani can often feel like an incomplete tzaddik. A baini in their highest levels can feel like an incomplete tzaddik, and so it can be hard to tell the difference between the two. Don't we say that it's hard to tell the difference from, as from an outsider's From an outsider's point of view, it's, it's, a, it's impossible, because like, if someone is a good actor, if someone doesn't want to let you know what's going on in their personal experiences, you will never know. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if I'm really good at acting, I might not enjoy what I'm doing at all. Right? I could have come off like I'm enjoying teaching you, but maybe I'm just very good at acting. You don't know. Right, so there is a level at which that, and the word tzaddikim were like this, that that made an active effort to conceal what they were experiencing, so that people wouldn't know that they were tzaddikim, and they wouldn't even know that they were were necessarily so pious. They would put themselves in a situation where a casual observer would think that they're just a regular, everyday person who stumbles and falls. But a tzaddik themselves, they'll know what kind of tzaddik they are. Not necessarily. You would know if you're complete. You would know if you're a complete tzaddik. You wouldn't necessarily know that you're a tzaddik, though. It's possible to not know that you're a tzaddik. Because remember, someone could, like I said, later on you're going to learn that a bainani can experience things very much like a tzaddik. But it's impossible to be an incomplete tzaddik and think you're a complete tzaddik. Not if you're honest, yeah. Um, no, I take that back. Because it could be the thing you have attachment for is so subtle and occurs so rarely that you haven't encountered it yet. And so you don't. Why, like, like simple things like enjoying things on Shabbos, he would. He would but maybe that's it. not what it's. Maybe that attachment he doesn't have anymore. Maybe the only attachment he has is to something very, very subtle that occurs a, a very so often, and so he just doesn't know about it. Like there are things about yourself you don't know because you haven't encountered them yet. So he doesn't. He doesn't feel enjoyment towards all holy things. You can enjoy all holy things, but there could be an unholy thing that he would still enjoy, but he doesn't know about it because he hasn't encountered it yet. But but if you. But if he, were, if, he, if he was a complete tzaddik, he wouldn't feel enjoyment on Shabbos when he's eating food. He wouldn't feel enjoyment. That's right. But you could not feel enjoyment from eating food and not be a complete tzaddik. It could be, because he says some of the attachments remain, not all of them. What if the only thing this incomplete tzaddik still enjoys, still feels an attachment to, um, is the sense of honor you get from being the leader of a big community. And he's never been the leader of a big community. And he'll so, he, so he's never experienced that. And so he doesn't even know that he had derives pleasure from that. But an incomplete tzaddik will only have pleasure, can only have pleasure, like it's a possibility that he could only have pleasure in one area? No. We're going to later on. There are levels to incomplete tzaddik. The complete tzaddik only enjoys God, nothing else. The incomplete tzaddik can enjoy other things in principle. How many other things varies from tzaddik to tzaddik? And so how do you know if you've never encountered, and you only enjoy those, and you only will enjoy those other things if it's in a context of serving Hashem. So how would he know whether he has those enjoyments or not? He would have to encounter those specific circumstances. If he hasn't done them yet, then how would he know that about himself? Right? right. Plus then you add the fact that a bainani can very often feel like an incomplete tzaddik. So it's not easy to really tell what's going on inside you. 
How could a baby, okay, this is a whole other question. Uh, how, could, how could a baby feel like he's an incubator? He feels that he is. Because he feels a strong love for Hashem and doesn't want to sin. And he doesn't, that's the love is not because his soul is fully integrated into his being, it's because he's spending a lot of time thinking about Hashem. It's very hard to tell about ourselves. Like, what's, what's the result of thinking? What's the result of just our temperament? What's the result of our environment? It's not easy to deconstruct that. What? Know whether you're in Sadiq or Abin? No, actually, it comes out from the time there's no. It's important to know what the differences are in order to guide your Avedo. But it's not important to sit and analyze which one you are. In fact, the opposite, you should always assume that you're not in Sadiq. So, 